Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. It's this tempting theory that you, why make any hard choices? You don't have to, all you have to do is for the Fed to just keep printing money. You don't need to worry about how much you're spending, how big the debt is. You don't have to offset anything. You don't have to raise taxes. I think this is a really pernicious and very, very dangerous theory. You just heard Bob Bixby, executive director of the Concord Coalition, talking to me about the perils and dangers of modern monetary theory. That's money printing, lots of money printing. And he is my guest coming up. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. The Concord Coalition is a non-partisan organization that encourages fiscal responsibility in Washington and helps educate the public about the federal budget and the need to protect our children and future generations from excessive government debt. And Bob Bixby will have plenty to tell us on this show as the US government ramps up with its latest COVID-19 $1.9 trillion spending bill. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Certainly, uh, there's signs of higher inflation, and the Fed has been saying that they expect higher inflation. And they're, they're, they're saying, but don't worry, we can handle it. I hope they can, because we're, we're probably going to get it. Our problem, I didn't really mention this before, but I mean, basically, the problem is driven by an aging population, rising health care costs. You look at the federal budget. Sherlock, it's grand to have you back. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is Bob Bixby of the Concord Coalition. It's been around since the early 1990s, and it has deep concerns about our debt, our national debt, creating a sustainable economic future for future Americans. And Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be with you. You've been writing a lot lately and speaking about where we're at today in the cycle of course, we've had a lot of stimulus spending, and I don't know what the exact figure is, but we've got to be up on $28 trillion in national debt and growing. So take us through that and why that's a concern. Yeah. Um, well, I think the eye-popping numbers in the past year or two have gotten some attention because the, the deficit, the uh, annual shortfall was around $3 trillion last year and probably will be about that this year. And that tends to focus people's attention on the huge sums of money that Congress has been spending in response to the pandemic. 
and kicked off a little bit of a debate about how much is too much. But I tend to focus on the fact, which I think is really the more frightening thing, uh, that our budget was on an unsustainable track before the pandemic ever hit. And it's going to remain on an unsustainable track when the pandemic fades. So just to put that in perspective, uh, in 2019, we had a budget deficit of almost a trillion dollars. And that's, you know, really uh, very, very high as a percentage of the economy and in dollar terms. And that was with a growing economy. And that's really the problem. Now, the, then the pandemic came along and we had to spend a huge sum of money because one of the things you do to fight the pandemic is try to limit, you know, social contact. And, and so businesses were closed and people stopped traveling and going to restaurants and bars and sports events. And, and so the economy took a huge hit and the government stepped in and said, well, if we're going to close things down, we have to give aid to people. And so we've ended up spending just huge sums of money in the last two years on that. That will fade. Uh, the mo that money will um, spend out and the pandemic will be brought under control, but we're still going to be left with a very large underlying structural budget deficit that, you know, it's going to come down from the huge heights that it is now, but it's, it's still going to level out around a trillion dollars and then start rising again in 2025 or so. And that's what I worry about. It's that our budget our federal priorities, our spending and taxes are on an unsustainable path, regardless of the, the pandemic spending. What's the real fear here? Is it servicing the debt? There will come a time where we can't do that. We'll go into some kind of national bankruptcy. Is that even possible with the way the American financial system is structured? I, I don't really think there'd be a bankruptcy. I think that uh, the first thing you mentioned is a, a real problem, which is servicing the debt. Uh, the, obviously, the more debt you rack up, the higher the cost to taxpayers. Now we're getting a break right now because there are very low interest rates. And But it, as you know, you've probably been reading, interest rates have been rising as uh, markets expect, been actually rising quite quickly. Mar uh, markets expect a booming uh, economy this year, later on this year, and maybe going into next year. And so interest rates on treasury uh, bonds are rising. That will be a cost to the federal taxpayers. And, you know, when you look at the projections from 10 years or the Congressional Budget Office actually does 30-year projections, it's really rising interest costs that consume so much of the budget. Right now, you can say, okay, it's not a problem right now. But uh, because of the, there are two factors, the massive amount of accumulating debt and the rising interest rates that are going to be uh, put, uh, you know, needed to finance that debt, that's really going to jack up uh, interest costs quite substantially. Now, the other thing is, what does all this debt do to economic growth? Does it are we, in effect, borrowing from the future? I worry about that a great deal when we think about future generations. Not only will they have a, a large interest cost burden in the budget, but 
you know, debt tends to, to crowd out private investment. Now, again, it's not doing that right now because of unique circumstances. But as people find other places to, uh, to invest their funds and would like to put it somewhere other than the federal budget, you know, what, what you can find is that uh, all, the government's need to finance its debt can, can eventually crowd out some private investment, which can lead to a slower growing economy. Okay, well, we don't want to get too granular here, uh, Bob, for the layperson. You mentioned rising interest rates, and people in the financial markets get that. And we're really talking about longer term rates. The overnight rate, the Fed fund rate is near zero. So that's telling us that the smart money and investors and Wall Street uh, is pushing those rates up, right? And that's yeah. going to come back to hurt regular Americans with rising service costs. Yes. I mean, as interest costs uh, rise, you see home loan, you know, car loans, uh, student loans, any, anything as interest rates uh, go up generally throughout the economy, it would come back to, uh, to affect Americans in their, in their uh, family budgets. All of this is against a backdrop of massive global debt, and that's rising. I, I'm losing track of the numbers, if we can even believe they're accurate, but 280 trillion, some bizarre jaw-dropping number. And not only do we have the national debt in America, we have personal debt, we have student debt, we have municipal debt, we have unfunded liabilities, debt everywhere. And which brings us to another matter, this concept of modern monetary theory, very popular during the election, very popular today. And in, in effect, both parties have practiced the form of it, just keep printing money digitally. So you have concerns about that too, right? Yeah, I really do. I, I think that it's one of those, uh, it's this tempting theory that you, why make any hard choices? You don't have to, all you have to do is for the Fed to just keep printing money. And uh, you don't need to worry about how much you're spending, how big the debt is, uh, you don't have to offset anything. You don't have to raise taxes. I think this is a really pernicious and very, very dangerous theory. Um, now, the reason that it's gotten so much currency in the current environment is because the government is essentially doing that right now. <laughs> I mean, but but that is in response to a specific circumstance. I, I sometimes liken it to an illness. You know, it, if you're sick, you take medicine. Uh, you might take COVID vaccines now or something. Mm. That doesn't mean that when the illness goes away, you want to, you know, keep taking the medicine. So right now you could say, all right, well, because of a very unique and, and very dire circumstance in the economy, we need to go big, as they say, on, uh, on deficits and debt. Now, here's my concern is that we don't stop that uh, later this year when the uh, economy is booming. Uh, hopefully, and uh, we're, we're back on track. So that's, I, I think the problem with monetary, modern monetary theory is it's an invitation to um, runaway inflation, a devalued currency. I mean, if the United States just you know, pretty much said, okay, folks, we're just going to print money. Our interest rates would go up because it'd be a, a risk premium. And uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't count on anything that the federal government does continuing because it would be you know, just built on a foundation of mush. I had Dick Beauvais 
He's the famed bank analyst at Audion Capital Group as a guest recently. And we spoke about this pernicious notion of printing money. And he is anticipating 1970-style inflation next year. Now, the headline rate won't say double-digit inflation or hyperinflation. We'll see figures of 2-3% because that's how the uh, the government agencies will present it. But he presented me current numbers. He's looking at a lot run-up in a lot of prices, commodities, housing. So while many Americans would say things look great on the housing front and everything, look at all this, the value of your home. In many ways, that might just be a symptom of inflation in our economy. This money has to go somewhere that's been released by the Federal Reserve. So do you think there's signs out there of inflation, hyperinflation coming? Certainly, uh, there's signs of higher inflation, and the Fed has been saying that they expect higher inflation. And they're, they're, they're saying, but don't worry, we can handle it. I hope they can, because we're, we're probably going to get it. And I would say that, you know, given all the debt that you mentioned before, worldwide debt, corporate debt, personal debt, it, it wouldn't take the sort of 70s style inflation to have a very uh, consequential and, and negative effect on all of this debt because people have sort of priced in low interest rates and low inflation. And so if it, if it ticks up, you know, even slightly higher than, than people have been anticipating, this could have a very negative effect. But we're already seeing President Joe Biden talking about higher taxes for individuals earning 200000 and up, 400000 for a household. He had to clarify that. But we're seeing a push now for higher taxes, which speaks to this whole idea of grappling with the runaway impact of money printing. Sure. And it, 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 it also deals with the, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a responsible part of it too, which says, well, if we're going to do all this new spending, we're going to have to raise taxes to pay for it rather than just do the modern monetary theory and print money. I guess my concern in a way is that they'll do the spending and, and not raise the taxes. You could not do the new spending and not raise the taxes. You could try to bring the deficit back under control and use any tax increases or spending cuts for that. I, I think we're on the horns of a very difficult political dilemma here because you know, Biden got a, a big uh, rescue package, stimulus package, or whatever you, you, know, you want to call it. But there's really that, that that's only the tip of the iceberg. The, the the president's budget, I think, is going to be really, really big. And uh, the question with infrastructure, climate change, healthcare, and the continuation of a lot of policies in the uh, in the last COVID bill, which were intended to be permanent but are technically uh, temporary. So the that does raise the question: How do you pay for it? And is it going to be the MMT route of just deficit finance, the whole darn thing? Or do you say, well, no, we're going to have to be honest about this and say, if we're going to spend more, we're going to have to raise revenues. So I, I, I think I was uh, somewhat um, comforted by the notion that Biden was putting and Yellen was putting the, the prospect of tax increases on the table because it, it, it at least draws a line away from the MMT um, mm. theory. When you look at this current COVID economy, the winners and losers and you look at some of the wealthiest people in America who have a lot of their wealth tied to company stock have seen 
their personal wealth soar and the lower tier earners have not done so well. And a lot of regular middle-class Americans have suffered during this COVID crisis, despite the best efforts of Uncle Sam. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the one of the uh, perverse effects of the pandemic was the businesses that were hit hardest were those that, that involved personal contact, uh, yeah. restaurants and uh, gyms, uh, you know, barbershops, nail salons, uh, and and travel, uh, hotels, airlines, uh, and so a lot of the workers in those industries are lower income folks. They got laid off. And, and, and there's still a huge deficit in the jobs there, whereas other people that could work at home and, and really dealing in finance and could conduct their business online uh, didn't have to, you know, they weren't shut down, perhaps inconvenience, but they weren't shut down. And, and so, yeah, I mean, that part of the economy has, has come back uh, pretty well. We'll be back in a moment talking to my guest, Bob Bixby of the Concord Coalition. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices. You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. My guest is Bob Bixby of the Concord Coalition, and I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Your group, the Concord Coalition, have a very interesting beginning. It was set up on a bipartisan basis I mean, let's try to do that today. We'd have a tough job, I think. Um, <laughs> I think you're right. If you could just be a little more clear about your mission, I know you advocate for responsible spending, but is it achievable? Have you got any closer or are you further away from that? And what are the solutions? It, it seems to me the solutions to all of these problems is going to require Americans to take personal responsibility to retire a lot of this debt. And I don't know if the, the political will is there and households are up for us. The political will clearly isn't there right now. When the Concord Coalition started in the early 1990s, 1992, uh, it was uh, possible to get bipartisan cooperation on attempts to to bring the budget, well, our goal then was a balanced budget. And we thought that that was an ambitious goal at that time. <laughs> um, it's something you couldn't even try now. It's so far, far off the charts. But, but, but uh, go back to the 90s and think about what happened. Throughout the 90s, the deficit came down. The, there was bipartisan cooperation between the Clinton administration and Republican Congress, and uh, we had a combination of good policy and, and good luck uh, with the economy and the end of the Cold War uh, and attempts by Congress to address the deficit so that we ended up with a surplus by the end of the 90s, which is something I never would have thought of when, yeah. when we started. That was under Bill Clinton's presidency. Oh, yeah, correct. Yeah. And, and he... Uh, came around to, to thinking 
uh, the deficit reduction was an important thing because it would position us for the challenges ahead. See, we always knew this, uh, our problem, I didn't really mention this before, but I mean, basically the problem is driven by an aging population, rising healthcare costs. You look at the federal budget, it's what's, what's programmed to rise and which has been rising faster than the economy and faster than revenues are uh, things like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. So we saw all that in the early 90s. Everybody did and said, this is going to be really, really expensive. What we ought to do is get our fiscal house in order before we hit that. So all that happened in the 90s was actually very wise about getting into that point. But then in the early 2000s, and and there was bipartisan cooperation. So uh, then in the early 2000s, you know, what happens is Everybody uh, decided that that problem was solved and we didn't have to worry about it. So we had a big tax cut and we went to war, two wars, and and never really regained our footing on uh, fiscal sustainability. There were some attempts, again, bipartisan around 2010. You might remember the Bowles-Simpson Commission and Alice Rivlin and Pete Domenici, Democrat and Republican, had a task force that I served on. And uh, we kind of, kind of almost came to some agreements there, a so-called grand bargain, but it, it fell apart at the last minute and, and it's been downhill ever since. Um, so it's, it, right now, I've never seen it worse. I mean, it just, I, you know, how do you get out of it? Well, I mean, we're going to have to address the healthcare and retirement programs that I mentioned before. Uh, and if we can't do that, we're going to have to, we're going to have to, and I think in probably in conjunction with that, we're going to have to raise more revenue somehow, uh, whether it's closing tax loopholes, I don't know what, but I mean, we're, the budget is so far out of whack um, that it's going to take things from both sides of the budget. And we can't just rely on things like, you know, waste, fraud, and abuse. Sure, there's a lot of waste, fraud, and abuse in the budget, but it's not growing faster than the economy. Uh, and it's nowhere near uh, the size that we would need to address this problem. So politically, the difficult thing is you're going to have to address the so-called entitlement programs, and you're going to have to address revenues. And those are toxic things. The Republicans don't want to address revenues. The Democrats mm-hmm. don't want to trust the entitlement programs. And both sides are more intransigent than they have ever been. So it's a, it's a pretty problematic dynamic. You would need strong leadership to persuade Americans to sign up to some kind of a rescue program. Yeah, I think you do. It's probably it would would have to come from the top. And, you know, right now, I don't see that that that's not a, a priority. It certainly wasn't a priority in the last administration either. So you really have to go back a ways before, uh, you know, in the 2010 era to where that sort of, um, that was a priority. And again, as I said, you know, what happened with Bowles Simpson is that both, you know, Barack Obama and John Boehner, who was then the, the powerhouse of the Republican side on the, in the House, um, really kind of backed off the uh, leadership that it would take to, to, get, their, to get their troops in order uh, to make a deal. I think that, that neither, one, neither one wanted to risk their base to try to, to have a deal. In some ways, it's so complex that Americans don't see, a lot of Americans, uh, many do, of course, but don't see the danger inherent. And we've, haven't we sort of set up unrealistic expectations, eh, if you're sending out, now th- this is not an argument against sending out the checks, but this is just to present 
the idea if you're going to send out a, a stimulus check for 1400 why don't you make it 2400 and if you can do that you know why don't we just retire all student debts americans many of them just don't get that that's a dangerous course to take yeah i i that's what i worry about is the um as you said it's not so much you know the $1400 checks or the $600 checks and i don't think that that was the most economically relevant part of the uh, the bill but it certainly was the most politically popular but okay they're one time checks it's not going to have some sort of long term effect on the budget unless uh as you were saying people get used to that kind of largesse from the federal government uh without any offsets or willingness to pay for it. And I think that's the biggest problem right now is, well, the biggest problem is getting the pandemic behind us. Okay? Yeah. But, but, but let's say when we turn our attention to the post-pandemic economy, are we going to have an enlarged and, and largely unpaid for expansion of the role of the federal government? And creating the expectation that that is going to be the case, that there's going to be a, a new involvement of the federal government in uh, in the economy and in and people's lives is uh, without any any uh, offsets uh, that's that's to me I think that's the real danger do you think we're facing some kind of crisis is it imminent uh, based on what you've seen over the years is this the worst we've ever had in terms of growing debt because you wrote about how this debt is going to double up the value of GDP in America. It's staggering. I mean, the it's the the debt right now uh is about equal to the size of the entire economy. We only did that before at the end of World War II. So that kind of gives you an idea. Now um we were we were almost there before the pandemic hit. Um, so again, that's not just a pandemic thing. We were we were knocking on the door of 100 percent of GDP with a with a strong economy and no crisis, uh, and that's the problem. So yeah, I think it's worse. And if you if you go forward, the Congressional Budget Office said just put everything on autopilot. Let's say Congress just goes home, doesn't do anything. The programs that are already in place would double the size of the debt uh, within 30 years, which conveniently uh, statistically doubles it as the size of the economy. So at my age, uh, I'm not going to be around in 2030. I mean, it's statistically possible, but I don't know that I will be. But if you are 30 or even if you're 50 and you're thinking about what our what our current policies are leading to within 30 years you're looking at a pretty devastating picture with with you know a, a crippled economy huge debt i mean we're we're thinking now about all these things we want to do with infrastructure and climate change and and we don't have to pay for it we're taking those kind of options off the table for the future. So the future doesn't get to determine its own priorities. We're doing it for them. We're borrowing money from the future and spending it on ourselves. And I don't think people think of it that way. Uh, I, I think more people need to think about it that way and take a, a more generationally responsible responsible view of uh, fiscal policy. It, it, it's, and, you know, right now it's stimulus checks and 
uh, you know, go big. And that's, that's fine. But we got to we got to come out of this and think of the post pandemic economy that has to be pro growth, pro economic growth and fiscally responsible. You've spoken about the super nanny state, um, but you're not against the idea of government supporting families where it's necessary and at a sensible, fiscally responsible level. That's right. I mean, and I, I think that one of the more interesting debates that we're going to have now is what happens to the anti-poverty provisions that were in the, the COVID bill that were directed at families. There was a big increase in the child tax credit, uh, the child care and dependent deduction, the earned income tax credit. It's a, it's a really major piece. It's a very interesting change, I think, or ex- expansion. I wish it hadn't been in a reconciliation bill with no bipartisan negotiation because it's a, it's a really important, thoughtful thing that we need to think about. We've had, we've had government um, programs that are vastly tilted towards the elderly, mm-hmm. uh, and they have done much to relieve poverty among the elderly that used to be a, you know, a, a much bigger problem. So this is an interesting concept. It's, it's kind of like, well, we should invest more in children. And I think that that is a very good idea. I think it should be done in a, in a thoughtful way and think about, again, how do you pay for it? Because just adding on a major new element to government spending, even if it's for a great purpose, eventually it's unsustainable because you're not paying for it. So I, you know, I mean, look, Republicans have ideas on the best way to do this. Mitt Romney had a, had a proposal to, to do it somewhat differently. I hope when the current provisions expire, because they, they were written to expire within a year, when they talk about trying to make it permanent, that they think more about a better way of implementing this rather than going through the IRS uh, in a way to pay for it, whether that's, you know, there's a, there's a whole lot of other programs that, that could be consolidated uh, into this. So let's think about a, a, a better way of doing this. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that it really budgeting is about priorities. And uh, I, so, I mean, it's, it's not just like green eye shade stuff. Mm-hmm. It's about it's about people and families and, and American values. So sure, uh, let's put all of that on the table, but but figure out how we're going to do it in a sustainable way. Well, one of the most successful government supported programs over the generations was Social Security, which, of course, that's another question that needs to be asked. Can we keep supporting it? I, certainly, the government shouldn't tap into it. But programs like that are great, and they have lifted and supported people in their later stage in life. Is that an issue? I mean, is Social Security threatened by what we're seeing, all the spending that's taking place now? Well, Social Security has problems of its own. Uh, yeah, I'm not saying, I, I don't know that it's threatened by the, 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 the great deal of spending that we're seeing now, but it is very much a part of that underlying mismatch between spending and revenues I was talking about. Social Security has been running a cash shortfall for several years, since uh, 2010 or 2012, somewhere around there. Uh, so what? What? It, speaking of how do you pay for it, Social Security was set up with a dedicated revenue source. It's the payroll tax that we, we all pay into. And for most years of its uh, history, it's been enough, or in some cases, much more than enough to pay the benefits that were had to be paid. So it's a good system. Uh, everybody pretty much into it. But um, 
the problem is that the revenue from the payroll tax is not enough to cover the benefits that are going out uh, as the baby boomers retire. And so every year that that gets a little bit bigger, the gap between money that comes in and money that goes out, it's around 70 billion or something like that and rising. Uh, and that contributes to the budget deficit. That needs to be distinguished from the trust fund. Social Security has a trust fund, but those are basically the government owes itself money and says, okay, I'm going to pay myself back this money that I borrowed earlier. Uh, and that, that's a matter of bookkeeping, just from a matter of the budget and the economy. Social Security is now paying out more than it, than it takes in. And so we have to do something. And, but eventually the, the trust fund runs out in, in the early 2030s. And then you get a real problem uh, because then the, you, the, only, the only benefits that can be paid are based on what comes in from the payroll tax. And what the trustees tell us now is that sometime in the 2030s, if we don't do anything, you'd have across the board benefit cuts of about 25%. Uh, well, uh, I don't think that that would actually happen, but that's the law. Uh, Congress would have to change it. And so again, that's not that far. You mentioned we have an aging population in America, and that's a problem, and that related to what's going on in Social Security spending right now, too. Yeah, because it, that, that, you know, what you're getting now is the baby boomers' retirement, and that's why Social Security has become much more expensive in recent years. Uh, eventually, that flattens out a bit, but it's not like it goes down. Uh, so we're going to have to address that problem it's a it's a very it's actually a, a much more pressing problem than people think mm -hmm. um you get a pass for not thinking about it during the pandemic but let's get back to it real soon because right. look if you're 50 and the trust fund is going to be insolvent in the 2030s in 2030 well that's about the time you might be retiring so and, and the reason you want to act now and not wait till the, to 2030 is you want to phase in changes. If, you, if you're going to gradually increase the eligibility age, if you're going to gradually uh, adjust the benefit formula or the payroll tax formula, you don't want to do these things suddenly. Uh, and so really now is the time that we ought to be working on that. What is your presence like these days on Capitol Hill? Uh, I know you do a lot of outreach to lawmakers. Um, how are you viewed and what kind of a reception do you get when you present them with these scenarios? I think there's a, probably an underlying knowledge, um, or at least a I, should, I should say, I think there's a vague understanding on the part of a lot of uh, policymakers on the Hill that these problems exist, but there is no desire to deal with them. Mm. I mean, and, and there used to be, and that's a change really, mm. because when we started, we used to have bipartisan groups that uh, worked together that we would encourage on both the House and the Democratic side. They would present budget plans, bipartisan budget plans. It was almost a competition. Now, really, there, there very, there's nobody, yeah. frankly, that's, that's working on that. Uh, I'm encouraged by a group of uh, 20 senators, and, and there's a group of, I think, 60 members in the House that meet together on a bipartisan basis. And they were very helpful in coming up with a, a COVID bill in December. We, we tend to forget there was a $900 billion uh, COVID bill um, before this, uh, the latest one. So there are some 
there are some members that really understand that we can't just go on in these partisan food fights uh, and they really do want to work across the aisle. But unless they stick, really stick together and force the, they have the power if they wanted to, mm-hmm. to in effect force the leadership to deal with some of these issues. And it's not just the budget, it's, you know, it's just fiscal policy, but it's a lot of things. Uh, and I, I hope they do. Um, but right now, it's it's not uh, like there are all, a lot of budget working groups uh, uh, looking for plans. But we we nevertheless go and and try to tell them what's uh, what's ahead. Well, it sounds like a lot of common sense has gone out the window um, in the days of the COVID economy and what has come before it. Maybe it'll take some kind of cataclysmic crisis internationally foreigners stop buying up our debt, funding our debt to bring policymakers and lawmakers to their senses. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly hope that, that that doesn't happen, but they're behaving right now as if they're in, inviting that to happen. It's like, stop me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you could look at a scenario where there's a treasury auction that just goes badly. And if people begin to get the sense that the U.S. government is just not going is, to is, is not going to get its fiscal house in order, and they put their money elsewhere. Right now, that's not happening. No, all right. And, and, and so, we are the reserve. We are a right, reserve yeah. currency. And so, but 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 we don't want to put that at risk. Hmm. And uh, so, it, it could take some sort of uh, crisis. But as again, I, I I certainly hope not. Bob, this has been a fascinating interview. Thank you for being on my show. Well, I very much appreciate it. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.